America's armed forces are arguably the greatest military presence in human history. Fostering a great military starts with fostering great soldiers. And in this episode, nurse practitioner Tanya Ivy Bloom, who serves in both the U.S. Army as a battalion commanding officer and as a clinical nurse practitioner at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, helps us compare and contrast military and civilian medicine. She shares stories of leadership, her experience through COVID while deployed in New York City, and takes us through a mindful approach to being a soldier and a medical provider. Enjoy. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I've struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. to Operate with Zen. Today, we've got the great pleasure of being joined by Tanya Ivy Bloom. Tanya, introduce yourself to the audience. Hello there. Um, So I am Tanya Ivy Bloom, a nurse practitioner um, at uh, the Brady Urological Institute at Johns Hopkins Hospital, mother of three, um, major in the United States Army Reserves, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, so it's a real pleasure to have you. Tanya and I got to know each other. We shared the practice together for, geez, almost two years before I transitioned to uh, to Penn. We shared a lot of patients. We shared some learning experiences. And we shared a lot of discussions about medicine and the military and things that we can all learn from from each other through those experiences. So we're here today to talk about some contrast and comparisons between medicine, military medicine, and the military in general. Does that sound good? Sounds good. Love it. All right. So one of the things I wanted to start with in, uh, in his book called Attending, Ronald Epstein talks about the military medicine and mindfulness and some of the real contrast. So I'll start with just some of the comparisons and, and that'll start our conversation. So in both military and medicine and military medicine, there are ongoing and extreme physical and emotional stresses. And obviously they're, they're different in those circumstances, but ongoing and extreme stresses. We all go through rigorous and all consuming training. We both have the dictum to first do no harm. We deal with complex problems that require mental stability, effective communication, ethical conduct, and the wisdom to manage the unexpected. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how these apply to to your experiences. So, um, you know, I, I I do think for sure that um, what that statement that you just made basically is 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 valid. I think it also shapes the those in military medicine, um, you know, share the same standards, high standards um, that are required on the civilian side as well. And then in addition to that, 
um, I would say, you know, an, an aspect, an additional aspect to that would be the leadership requirement um, and having to kind of shift um, into taking all of that that you just said and then applying the component of, of, of leadership and, and how am I going to effectively manage all of that you just said and then in addition to everything else that's required um, to, to lead as, as a soldier because um, in, in the military and in the army in particular, we're soldiers first and your job is second. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? You know, both constructs have leadership built into them, but it is much more, I don't know if formal is the right word, but at least objective in the military, where you know your role, you know your, your responsibilities, not only to those above you, but to those beneath you. Yeah, so... You're, you're absolutely right. So in, in medicine and in, in the military, one of the things that I would say practitioners are acutely aware of is that what they do or fail to do affects the entire group, not just their patients, but their subordinates as well. And so for um, physicians, of course, um, who are the gold standard and who lead the way in medicine, that means ensuring that everyone on their team is trained up appropriately. Um, and so that's sharing the wisdom and their knowledge base with the advanced practice providers, the nurses, the medics, okay? Um, the OR techs, the RTs, the everyone that's involved um, in, in and on the team, because the sense is that and, and, it's, and it's very real, okay, especially, you know, depending on the situation or the environment, if it's a combat environment, that, you know, the, the, the physician is acutely aware that if he or she goes down, then the ball keeps rolling. And folks, you know, patients, you know, which are, which are service members still have to be taken care of. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. And I don't think, you know, being in civilian medicine, I don't think that gets stressed enough, right? We often see these silos in medicine, and I would say particularly in academic medicine, but I know it exists in practice too, where, where you're siloed sometimes and you feel, you know, um, I'm the only one who's responsible for my patient, I, 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 me, 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 instead of group dynamic and group think, which I think is something we really could learn and benefit from the, the military mindset and, and infrastructure. Yeah, so you're absolutely right, Phil. And you know, one of the things that I really liked about our team, um, which we, which was deliberate and which we, which we engaged in was team building. And you were instrumental in that, um, ensuring that we had cohesion, unit cohesion. Okay. And, you know, as you, you know, as the leader of the team, as it, as it should have been and, and was, and then you have your team members, which were, you know, me, an advanced practice provider, and then, um, you know, our, our wonderful administrative assistant. And so the sentiment was not that I am better than anyone else. It's that we together will work to ensure that we um, fill any gaps because no one person can take care of 
all aspects of what's involved in patient care and, you know, in medicine. So it is essential to be effective um, and to be, to be um, relevant, to have good teamwork. Yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you, I've become much more conscious of this uh, in my in my new role here is because leadership is formally much more of a part of this and trying to learn from, you know, some of the military structure. And listen, there are times I fail and do things poorly, but it one of my very strong beliefs is that hierarchies need to exist and they obviously exist in medicine and they need and they exist in the military and in civilian medicine. I believe it's really for safety, right, because you have to have kind of an order of um of leadership or, or, or who's going to follow orders to make sure that patient safety is observed. But hierarchy does, and I make this very clear to my team, does not necessitate that one person is better than the other. And in fact, the person in the bottom of the hierarchy is just as important, if not more important than, than the person at the top of the hierarchy. And I think that when the military is working well, I think that is part of the, part of the infrastructure. Please correct me if I'm, if I'm off there. No, you are completely on the mark with that one for sure. Um, so in the military, you know, in the army for sure, um, everyone has to follow the same, you know, everyone falls under the same tenets, the tenets exact, um, excuse me, of what the military's mission is, okay? Soldier first. So everyone understands what their role is and that they're responsible for the next person, irrespective of rank. And in addition to that, the higher the ranking, higher ranking you are, the more responsibility you have to your subordinates. Because one of the jobs is to, for a leader or someone of a higher ranking, if you will, in terms of the hierarchy, is to make sure that the person below you that you're responsible for makes the next rank. So it's your responsibility to pull them up. Conversely, if a person of a higher ranking, and, and of course in the military is you know it's hierarchy based, is not following the rules and or needs some type of correction or um, or or counsel, then it's a subordinate's responsibility to um, approach that conversation as well. And then I just wanted to mention one other thing. You you said failure, and you know sometimes you you fail and fail poorly. That's actually a, a you know another tenet again, if you will, of, of leadership. We cannot become effective leaders if we do not um, fail at certain courses of actions. In fact, it's required for to become an effective leader. Failure is re, is required. It's a, re a requirement. How else are we going to learn what we need to do to affect a certain situation? It's really important. And I just want to point out for our audience too, um, you're, as usual, you're, you're humble. Um, you are the first woman XO or commanding officer of your battalion and make sure I get that right. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you certainly know about leadership and you taught me a lot about leadership when we worked together. Well, thank you for that, Phil. I was the flagship commander for um, the medical detachment, one of the medical detachments, the 336 medical detachment, detachments in our field hospital. And I am the first executive officer in the field hospital, female executive officer in the field hospital. And um, 
I, I think that's somewhat significant um, in that an executive officer is traditionally a male role, um, keeping in mind also the military is dominated by males. Um, but that particular position is, it's, it's a rough position. It's, it, it's a lot of work involved, a lot of logistics, a lot of operations. Um, it's, you know, pretty nitty gritty. So um, I am honored, to be honest with you, to have been selected in that position. Uh, I, feel, I feel very honored and I still serve in that position as well. Well, we're proud of you. Um, so, you know, to kind of flip it and say when things don't work well, and we see this in both the medicine and in the military, is when the hierarchy can actually create more harm than good. And it's often when there's a disconnect between the decision makers and the frontline workers and whether we want to call that rank or, or hierarchy, but we see that in, in both fields too. And, and I don't know if you have any insights or examples that you want to share with us. No. So, yeah, I think that's very true. Um, so in the, so in the military, what we say is, and, and I speak in the army and, you know, in particular, um, if you will, because I am in the army soldiers first, soldiers first. And what that means essentially is boots on the ground. Those who are fighting the fight. Those are the folks that we have to take care of first and foremost. So what that means is essentially as a leader, any strategy involved in trying to achieve the mission first involves um, the planning and preparation of ensuring that the boots on the ground soldiers, if you will, are taken care of. That means, well, what does that mean? That means that their families are taken care of. It means that we're in tune to their mental health and their physical health. Um, and that we acknowledge that we all share the same human experiences just on different levels and being cognizant of that. And in the hierarchy, it is important to be able to step back and say, okay, what must I first do to take care of them first and foremost? Because if that doesn't happen, then we'll never get to the goal. We can't even begin to really affect our trajectory. Um, so I say that because on the civilian side of the house, I think we often don't take into consideration the same thing, if you will. So those who are the support staff, if you will, the ancillary staff um, supporting the, the practices, they're the most important, if you will, on many levels, because they're doing all of the stuff um, to, to make it possible for us to be able to practice. Absolutely, and they're the ones delivering the care to the patient. Uh, and often the most proximate to the patients and the people who we're focused on, right? And when you talk about mission-based care, at least in civilian medicine, I mean, the mission are the patients. Uh, at least uh, I, I think that analogy holds true. Yes. I think we sometimes have the, we get this false sense of security that we are working in isolation and that we can do things on our own and that we can take care of things on our own and, and, and we simply cannot. It does, it does take teamwork. So just to kind of finish up the the analogies um, with military and medicine, um, there is trauma that is seen in, in both fields. 
and you've got to learn how to deal with the trauma. And there are also huge personal sacrifices that happen on both ends. And I think, interestingly, one of the last connections that Dr. Epstein brings is that reflection and self-awareness are not necessarily a part of each professional culture. But part of the reason you and I are talking today is because that's changing in the military for certain. And so we're going to kind of talk about some of the ways the military addresses reflection, self-awareness, leadership, and trying to promote healthy culture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I do think that self-discipline and humility and emotional intelligence are, are required to be successful in both military and civilian medicine. Um, it's very similar, you know, depending on what side of the house you're on in terms of the trauma and, you know, seeing deaths and the, and the, um, the stress that goes along with just being, you, you know, having made the choice to, 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 to give selfless service to your patients. I think that's true on both sides, to be honest with you. I think it's fair and I think it's equal. I was a nurse before I joined the military and I'd seen a lot already having, having had worked in, in critical care um, so, you know, that same level of, um, of, of, of self-discipline of having to, um, be able to, um, check ourselves, check our emotions and kind of, you know, categorize, you, you know, put all of that stuff, if you will, in, in a certain category in our brain and in our lives, um, holds true on both sides of the house. Yeah. And, and it brings, you know, there's some great analogies from, I don't know if it's military teaching or military lore, but, you know, things like uh, understanding what the ground truth is, right? The, the ground truth is a, a military expression that says what's actually happening on the ground, not what the intel or the report says, but, you know, what are people actually telling you that's happened? And I think that's really um, an important perspective for medical providers outside of the military, you need to understand what's happening with your patients, what's happening in the operating room, in the clinics and your procedure suites, what's happening with your nurses and nurse practitioners and PAs and physician extenders, our administrative assistants as they interact with our patients. What is the ground truth for how we process through these things? And I think it's a point you're, you're getting to, and it's very well recognized. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that, you know, that kind of lends into culture as well. You know, so every unit in the army is not um, you know, cookie cutter. It's not exactly the same. There are different um, cultural um, ways and different um, values that shape each unit. And so we have to adjust, you know, we have to have the mental agility, agility to be able to say, okay, in this environment, this is what is needed to be able to take care of patients. And the exact same holds true on the civilian side as well depending on where you are. This population needs this. And that's the ground truth. The ground truth is being able to be large-minded enough to see that it's not about us. It's not about us. It's not about what our what we want necessarily to give. It's about what the population needs from us. That's great. And if anyone's interested in, in some of these kind of... Um, medical directions. There's something called funks fundamentals, which are 40 
fundamental sayings that are true of kind of military training. And they're not all applicable to medicine, but I pulled some of them out. And some of them have to do with military structure, which I think are directly applicable to medical structure. And so I'll just kind of share some of them and then get your, your reaction to them. So first, trust but verify. I mean, we say that all of the time in medicine. Good units uh, do routine things routinely. So, so do, do the routine well. Don't, lo- don't let analysis cause paralysis. Don't get caught up in the numbers when, when you really have someone right in front of you. The army or medicine, if you want to change the term, is a people business at its core. And humans can learn in one of two ways, either through emotional experience or through repetition. And that's how we can enhance our own learning and our own structure. And lastly, a good idea only becomes great when it's shared with others. So trust but verify is what I preach to my soldiers when I see them. It is so incredibly important to be able to um, close the loop. And closing the loop is super important because that's how um, that's how we're able to complete a mission. Um, so trust but verify is super super important. And the other thing it does, it also facilitates good communication because we all have different ideas of how we think or what we think, what has been said, or what the expectations are. So trust but verify helps to basically get stuff done, if you will. Yeah. And I think it's um, also, I was just going to say, you know, it's really important for people to trust, but verify doesn't mean that you don't trust or like, or believe in the person who gave you that initial information. It's not, it has nothing to do with that. It's literally verifying for the, for the good of the mission or the good of the patient. Absolutely. And it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It's the professional thing to do. Um, and the end result or the end goal is going to be completion, which is what we're is what we're looking for. Because without that, then um, then there may be assumptions that are just lingering. So I didn't know if you had anything else you wanted to comment on. Otherwise, I, I wanted to transition a little bit into into kind of some of the leadership thoughts in, in military. Yep, sounds good. All right. So I want to start actually um, with some. With your personal experience, tell us about you were deployed uh, very early on in the COVID crisis to the Javits Center in New York. Tell us about your COVID experiences, what you saw, um, and and tell us how it kind of influenced or affected your understanding of of leadership and how to work in these military medical settings. So I have to say, I think the military overall has learned a lot from the last few wars that we've had. We've learned a lot from the Iraqi war. Um, I did deploy during Operation Enduring Freedom um, and and the, um, you know, the wars previously. So I think the military has really, is really up with the times, if you will. Um, when we mobilized to, so, so in the Army Reserves, if you're in the active Army Reserves, basically you are, technically can get mobilized within 72 hours. Okay. Every unit is supposed to be mission ready and ready to move within 72 hours. So last year was actually the the first time in the army's history because the army by definition deploys outside of the United States. So that was the first time in in the army's history that we actually deployed, if you will, on our own ground. 
Okay. I will say that I was, um, you know, we had our hiccups and anybody who knows who's been in the army for one day knows that, um, you have to hurry up and wait. Okay. Is what, is what we say, but I was exceptionally, um, surprised at how efficiently we were able to move within such a short period of time. I think it was something like 12 to 13 days that the army um, mobilized such a large group to, to the Javits Center. And then there were a few other areas as well in the United States. It was, it, it was more efficient than I thought. Um, so, and then our, our infection control piece, then that part of it as well was very effective. Um, and I was very impressed by that. We had the public health, um, the, the public health command, uh, they're not a part of the military, but the Department of Defense, they assisted us as well and basically handled most of the infection control piece. That part was very efficient. So at the Javits, uh, you know, it was a large convention center, you know, really affected me in that the population that was there were folks who majority who did not have insurance, um, immigrants, um, poor folks, um, folks from nursing homes, you know, vulnerable populations, essentially. And um, we were able to provide as you know, the best care possible that we could in the shortest amount of, amount of time. Um, one of the things that I took away from that was this incredible sense of how privileged I am, and and we all are in in the U.S. And um, you know, to have insurance, to to have a good job. That's the biggest takeaway that that I got from that. It was. Um, it was not it was not a nice experience at all. It was great in that all of the providers that went there, we all had the same goal. Everybody was helpful. Uh, you know, all the physicians that came um, that were there, advanced practice providers, nurses, medics, we all worked together together with the common goal of trying to save these folks' lives in a situation where you know, there were so many unknown variables. Yeah, it's, you know, well, thank you for your time and thank you for your service. And and I know it was an incredible, um, we'll just call it an incredible experience and leave it at that. But, you know, one of the things I'd like to ask you just in a little follow-up on that is how did you take care of each other? How did, how did the, the military foster kind of that personal care for each other given the trauma and the stress and the tough living conditions and the nightmarish stuff you guys had to see on a daily basis, how did you guys take care of each other? So we were very fortunate to have really good commanders. I think the army overall chooses really, uh, um, chooses really good commanders, meaning, um, I mean, they're not chosen by one particular person, but in terms of the qualifications needed for a commander, we had really good commanders who really cared um, about us, okay? And I think the Army really did put into place the soldier's first piece. So 
all you really have when you mobilize is the person to your left and the person to your right. And we all know that. Um, and, and that camaraderie kind of kicks in pretty quickly. And, and folks just begin to be, you know, does they just kind of settle down into the natural human aspect of caring for one another. So it's actually very, quite, quite innate, if you will. Um, in that particular instance, during the Javits, we didn't have access to much. So oftentimes when we mobilize with the military, we, if we're in the desert, it's not much to give, but the, the army will make sure you have a couple of gyms. They'll set up a tent and you have a couple of gyms. We'll mark out a spot and we'll run in the sand. It was a little bit different with Javits in that everybody was in isolation. So what we did was we just talked to one another and we, you know, shared snacks with one another. And as mundane and as simple as it seem, seems, it meant a lot. You know, we reached out to our family members to check on our comrades, family members, who they were worried about. Um, so while rudimentary, that's, that's how we cared for one another. And, and the Army also had the same. They had folks in the rear. If you need us to reach out to your family, we will. And so, you know, in that particular instance for that mobilization, um, that's how we took care of one another. And the last thing I want to say about that is this, our commanders showed up. Those commanders, those high level commanders, they showed up. They showed up, they brought us outside. We could only stay outside for a short period of time. And they said, look, we can't stay long because of the rules or whatever, but we are here and we want you to know that we're here. So, that meant a lot. Yeah, it, it brings up a couple other of the, the funks fundamentals that I want to share. And the first one it brings to mind is leadership is a contact sport and it requires daily interaction. And I think your commanding officer set a great example by doing that. Another point, another fundamental, I think, uh, brought up by your, by your story and your sharing here. No one cares how much you know until they know that you care. And I think that's true, obviously in the military, but I think that's true in medicine too, whether we're talking about working in our teams, working uh, with our patients, right? No one cares how smart you are, or how good you are at what you do, if they don't feel a sense of caring from you. And I think that's a really important aspect of, of leadership. And the last thing I want to bring up is high standards, positive outlook, and excellence are all contagious. And I think that's a great lesson that, that we all can learn from. Absolutely. So Phil, you know, one thing I can say is that I, you know, I still have the, the pleasure and the honor of seeing some of your former patients and um, across the board, what they say to me is how much they miss you and how much you cared for them and how they felt like they just felt at ease because you essentially um, let them know through your mannerisms, your actions and your words that you were going to take care of them and that they were, they were like family to you. I hear that almost daily. And so, yes, folks feel, folks act on feelings. You know, we humans, we act on emotions. 
if we feel, you know, how we feel is going to, you know, help dictate how we act. And so it's super important. Nobody's going to um, want to follow you if they don't think you actually care about them or you're invested in them on some level, on some emotional level. Leadership is, is not, is absolutely not innate. That's one of the things that I have learned in, since I've been in leadership in the army. You would think it might be, you would think because you have folks who are so, um, you know, wedge, uh, educationally, um, um, you know, have educationally, I guess what I was looking for, um, their aptitude is so high and that their intellect seems so, um, so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The intellect seems so kind of rare, if you will. One would think that person would be in, in a natural leader. It's not true. It's not true. Leadership is not innate, nor is it defined by educational or societal status. I think it's a rare skill that's shaped by integrity, self-awareness, maturity, humility, intellect, and personal experiences. Um, and I also believe that mentorship is a prerequisite in leadership development as well. Yeah, I think those are those are all phenomenal points, and it's going to be a beautiful segue into our our kind of next section. But I wanted to just thank you for sharing the the story about my patients, and you know, I always try and keep in mind the the Maya Angelou quote, which I'm going to ruin, but you know, something along the lines of you know, people won't necessarily <laughs> remember you know what you say or what you did to them, but they'll remember the way you made them feel. And I think that's really important. We get caught up sometimes in the nuts and bolts in medicine and what's the diagnosis, what are our treatment strategies. And while all of that is incredibly important, um, it's also important how we care for people and how they feel cared for. And, and, you know, I, I joke with, with my patients all the time at, at most as a surgeon, at most 50% of what we do is surgical. The other half or more is talking people through these things, helping them understand it, making them feel That's safe right. in understanding that we're going to do something invasive to them. And it's mm -hmm. with the hope of, of getting them better. And while we want things to go perfectly, they don't often go perfectly, but but we can care for them throughout that process. And it's challenging. I think that's the, the hardest part of surgery. Well, you've done an amazing job at that with that film. And, um, you know, I've watched you and and have had, you know, once again, I use the word honor, but I mean that, um, you know, the honor of being able to um, see you treat folks that way and treat your patients that way and treat everyone that way. And it does, it is important to be around, you know, that folks who, you know, are doing as well as you or if not better in terms of how you want to treat others, because it is infectious. Yeah, and you're, and you're absolutely right. And, and to your other point, I mean, I've had some phenomenal mentors in my career who've shown me the way sometimes explicitly and sometimes just, you know, kind of by example and, and by being around them. And I'll tell you, I'm sure your example is the, the, the same. I mean, listen, we also have, um, uh, we'll, I'll call it negative mentorship, right? Uh, examples you don't want to lead lead by, and and you can learn a lot from from, you know, learning uh, learning how you don't want to behave as well too. And we can all, I think, we should all try and 
try and lead by positive example. You know, we want people to, to act the way we do in a positive direction, but there are certainly people out there who have less than ideal behaviors or interactions, and we can learn from those too. No, absolutely. You know, it's, it's important to be able to not, to try not to judge first and to step back and see what lesson we can get out of situations. Um, you know, sometimes we don't know what we just don't know. And you're, you're absolutely right. To be able to take something positive out of a negative um, requires skill as well. And it's important. It's important to do if, if we're able to do that. And one of the things you, you turned me on to in, about military training, and, and I find it absolutely fascinating, is that the military, especially in leadership, has really embraced kind of holistic health and fitness. And for anybody who's interested in, in reading more and, and learning more about this, there's an, uh, I hope I use the right term here, but a, a unclassified document called uh, Field Manual 7-22, which you can Google and find, which is really about holistic health and fitness in the military. And the chapter progression is phenomenal. It talks about principles and, and phases of physical training. But what I found really fascinating is uh, chapter nine, um, which is about mental readiness. And you can see in this entire manual, it goes through nutritional re readiness, spiritual readiness, sleep readiness, all of these other things that you wouldn't necessarily think that the military does. But once you read through it, you understand why these things are so important to military training and military leadership. And so uh, once again, if anybody's interested, look up Field Manual 7-22. And, and uh, Tanya and I are going to talk about some of it today. Yes. At the core, at the very core of the Army, which is a unified land operations um, organization, um, at the core of everything that I've said, at the heart, the nut, and the bolts of all of that is mental and physical readiness. Yeah, it's really incredible. And, and the, objective, um, the objective way they describe it in the field manual, and when you're talking about soldiers and, and in the more traditional sense, soldiers with armed soldiers in combat, um, you're talking about lethality, right? And, and the more lethal soldiers can protect themselves, protect each other, and achieve a mission. But that comes to physical readiness and mental toughness. But the analogy is true whether you're trying to be lethal or not. If you're being an effective physician or an effective nurse practitioner or an effective business person, right? Physical readiness, mental toughness are part of what we do. That's right. That's right. So, you know, to know what your mission is, civilian side, military side of the house, what's the mission? Okay. Unfortunately, there are casualties. There are going to be casualties and, and, you know, on the civilian side or the military side. And knowing this, and this is what one, one, what we've chosen, okay, so this is on us. And then two, that this is um, a, a part of, of the process, if you will. H how am I going to handle that? How am I setting myself up for success? How am I preparing myself for the inevitable? What insurance am I putting into place? Not if, but when, when these, when this occurs. Yeah. And I love it. And in a very military fashion, it's very objective. And I'll just read one, you know, one quote, mental readiness promotes resilient soldiers, adaptive leaders, and cohesive teams particularly leaders who thrive in uncertainty and chaos. They visualize, describe, direct, lead, and assess operations in a complex environment 
against adaptive enemies. And while that's meant to be combat experience, or that's what they're talking about specifically there, the analogies to medicine and whether it's medicine in the military or civilian medicine are, I think, very true to what we do uh, on a daily basis. No, absolutely. So, you know, we have those known variables, you know, we're going to, for you, you're going to enter surgery and these are the potential things that could happen. And this is how you're going to deal with it. And the guidelines say this, and your training says that you've got that. But what's not always factored in to that portion right there is the emotional aspect of it. Okay. That's the wild card, the wild card, wild card for us all on both sides in medicine is what could trip us up? What emotionally could change us? Is it someone else in the OR that, you know, something happens to them? Is it something I don't necessarily expect during the surgery? And, you know, on the military side of the house, it's the exact same thing. So how am I going to navigate that emotional aspect of that portion. Yeah. And it's, um, and I think it's fascinating the way the, the military addresses this too. And they basic down basically say, listen, stressful situations are, uh, have to do with arousal control. And we see our heart rates go up. We see our breathing rates go up and we can handle and modulate those things for better outcomes in these situations. And the way to practice that, and this is something I've taken into my life now is actually through physical stress, working out, tough physical activities that get your heart rate up, they get your breathing fast, they put you under stress. And then if you can kind of handle those situations, that mimics the physiologic response you may see, whether it's with a difficult patient or in the operating room and things aren't going well, you can mimic those physiologic stresses. So when you're actually in that situation, you know how to handle the, at least the emotional side of that. And I think that's fascinating. Absolutely. So, you know, you hit the nail on the head. So, in the army, you know, first and foremost, if you're not physically, if you don't meet the physical requirements, um, the army's physical fitness requirements, you will be processed out of the army at some point. And it's for all of those reasons, essentially, that you just mentioned. It is because there is a large uh, physical burden that's required in terms of carrying equipment. And, be, and having to be on your feet for long periods of time and in stressful environments with you know, nothing but what you have on your back. And that goes for medical folks too, depending on the environments um, in the military. And so that promotes good physical fitness requires self-discipline and self-discipline helps to promote um, mental readiness, because of course, that's what's needed for the self-discipline. And so um, you're right, it does, it does set you up being able to push through um, that which you didn't necessarily think you could on a physical level um, is going to be very helpful in super stressful situations, carrying your weapon, having to fire your weapon, you know, in order to be a good shot, you have to be able to um, regulate your breathing or your shot is going to be off. So everything that you just said, and it does hold true on both sides of the house, on the civilian side and the military side of the house. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the military also does, so, so they talk about ways to kind of 
control your physiology and, and the sniper example is great or, or any marksman example of controlling your breathing, but it's not just that. And some of the things they specifically talk about that are applicable to medicine, performance imagery, right? So working through mental rehearsals of what you're going to do, it helps if you're physically stressed at that moment too, because then you can work on your physiology. But I think most importantly, which you, you wouldn't necessarily think the military would be teaching, but positive emotions, being enthusiastic, active, optimistic, hopeful, all of those things, whether it's through self-talk, whether it's through um, objective goal setting with your unit, or whether it's just through unit cohesion, all of these things are so important to a successful military identity. And I think it's directly applicable to what we do. Well, absolutely. So, you know, unit cohesion, good unit morale, good morale, um, team building, these aspects of, you know, helping everyone in a group to feel a part of, which helps to foster good emotions, um, positive outlook. All of this is fostered, you know, on the military, military side of the house um, to help, pre help prepare and, and get us ready for being able to handle individual stressors. And, you know, one of the other things I talk about that, that's so important is interpersonal communication. And uh, it's broken down kind of into communication as well as engagement, where engagement refers to kind of how well a soldier is attuned to the mission and the team. And, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us some of the, you know, training you went through for communication and engagement, how do you make your unit more engaged? How do you work on your communication skills? Because I, I I believe you and 100% uh, agree with you that this is not innate. These are skills that can be learned and taught and fostered. So how did the military train you in, in these situations? So I will say first and foremost, this is probably the most difficult aspect of leadership is, is effective communication for sure and without question whatsoever. Um, one is authenticity. I think overall, humans in general can appreciate authenticity from a leader if they're designated as their leader, chosen as their leader, whatever that leadership looks like. So authenticity is first and foremost. I try to keep things simple as a leader. Um, I do first, um, uh, another thing is, um, you know, when I took command, I sat down with every single solitary soldier in my unit and had a conversation. What do you do? What's going on? What does your family look like? What are your goals, your aspirations, so on and so forth? I have an open door policy. If you need me, here we go. So that's kind of sort of how I started that. And then the other aspect is MDNP, which is the military decision-making process. So, you know, the Army has uh, an acronym for every single, for everything. Whatever it is, it's going to, whatever the term was, it's going to be changed into an acronym for sure. So MDMP, the military decision-making process. And that's kind of where I start with my soldiers in terms of in making sure that everybody understands that there is a process. There's a process that we have to follow. We all have to follow that process. And you get to also um, give your input along the way. And so 
in shaping the process and just shaping the decision-making processes along the way. And oh, oh, and by the way, it's actually mandatory that you do this for your leadership development. Um, so I don't know if that kind of answers the question, but that's kind of how I, how, how I approach that part. And what I have found is that if when soldiers, one, think that I'm just as human as they, and then number two, that I actually trust them, that I trust that they can make decisions and that their contributions are important, everything else just kind of falls into place. It makes a lot of sense. And I, I think it makes, once again, it makes a lot of sense whether you're in a military or a civilian um, setting. So we've talked through a lot of things today. Um, I just want to give you the, you know, the opportunity, you know, what else do you want to tell the audience? What else do you want to talk about? Are there questions you have? I don't have any questions. You know, I, 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 I do think that, I do think that being able to appreciate the human experience is super important in being an effective leader. Um, in terms of selflessness, being able to see what everyone in the group needs before the, in addition to the needs of yourself is always going to be required for effective leadership. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that I just feel incredibly honored and fortunate to be able to serve in the United States military. It's just been amazing for me to be able to live in a you know, regular life, if you will, as a mother, um, as, as a practitioner, um, and to be able to serve others uh, is just, um, it's one of the, th it's just very important to me. And I just feel very humbled that I'm able to, to, to have these opportunities to be able to give to others. That's it, really. And I thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, you know, and I, and I want to take this opportunity to thank you for your service um, and thank uh, all of the military members out there who serve, particularly in the medical units, who we learn a ton from. And I would encourage you, if you have not worked with a military provider, to spend some time with them because they will enrich your understanding of leadership of working in a team, of mission goals, all of those things. And I learned a ton from you specifically, and I've learned uh, a lot from the others I've interacted with. And, and I think it's, uh, we have a lot to learn from the military and we have a lot to be thankful for people who make sacrifices like you do for the betterment of our country, for the betterment of our people, for the betterment of this world. So thank you. Well, you're very welcome. And, and once again, you know, it's actually my honor and my pleasure to do so. So I'm just going to walk through some summary points and, and feel free to make comments um, as, as you want. But these are some things I jotted down I think are really important uh, that, we, that we covered today. So, you know, as we think about kind of contrast and comparisons between the military medicine and military medicine, you know, what you do or what you fail to do affects the entire group. And so as you climb up the hierarchy of leadership, whether no matter what context you're in, you are responsible to train and provide your wisdom and knowledge to the people uh, underneath that, that hierarchy so that everyone, uh, that the whole group moves forward. So really important is the soldier first mentality and to have a mission orientation, right? To be mindful and thoughtful and intentional in the way we process it 
but we put each other at the forefront of that and take care of the people you work with and, and the people that, uh, that deliver care. I love the, the, what you've flat out said that you hire your rank means the more responsibility you have to your subordinates and you can foster that development and foster that rank by being authentic, by keeping your uh, conversations and your mission simple for people to understand but really focusing on the human experience, being selfless and putting the group's needs before your own needs. I, I think that is, that holds true on, in, in every aspect of, of life for leadership, whether you're in the military, whether you're a top CEO somewhere, whether you're a top surgeon such as yourself, Phil, um, these are these are the basics. These are the basics, and I don't think that uh, you know I didn't invent them um, for sure. I had great mentors. You've actually been a great mentor, Phil, uh, a leader. You've helped to groom me, and I've taken some of your positives and then incorporated them into my practice. And you know, some things just don't change. My dad. Um, used to say to me as I was growing up, humans are thinly veiled. We think that we are not, but we are. And human experiences are shared by all humans. So, you know, simply put, we're pretty much all living the same life and some things are just not rocket science. And then, you know, and just are going to just need to happen in order to, to operate a certain way. And I believe pretty much in a nutshell, and you summed it up well, and thank you for that, Phil, that which you've said is necessary for effective leadership. Well, thank you. And, and just point out, mentorship goes both ways. I learned a ton from you uh, as well and from your experiences. So I'd like to thank you for being here. I'd like to thank the audience for listening. I hope uh, there's a lot of really good uh, pearls and nuggets and practical advice in this uh, talk today and this conversation. So I hope you enjoyed and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for having me, Phil. I appreciate it.